Welcome to Purdue Commercial AgCast at Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host today, James Minter, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Michael Langemeyer, who's the Associate Director of the Center and also Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. We're going to review the results from the July Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer Survey of Farmers from Across the Nation. Each month, we survey 400 farmers across the U.S. to learn more about their perspectives on the ag economy. This month's Ag Barometer Survey was conducted from the 10th through the 14th of July. And Michael, the Ag Economy Barometer rose slightly. I mean, it's, it's a very small change. Uh, the reading this month was 123. That's up from 121 last month. And of course, last month we did have a big jump or a big improvement in the barometer, so I don't want to discount that. That does leave the barometer about 20 points higher than it was this time last year. Uh, but still below where it was a couple years ago. You go back two years ago, that index was at 134. Last year at this time, it was a 103. This month's reading, 123. Were you surprised? I, 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 don't, I don't really know what my expectations were. I thought it might be relatively stable, but this is a really small change. And, and it, it makes me believe that until we get more information on what the crop yields are going to be, it's probably going to be relatively flat. You know, Michael, when I was doing the write-up this month, uh, the first thing I looked at was the change in commodity prices that occurred from when we conducted the survey in mid-June to when we conducted the survey in uh, mid-July, and I used the Wednesday settlement prices on the uh, futures prices uh, to look at that, and looked at cash prices as well in terms of like fall bids, for example. And I think uh, fall bids for corn delivery between mid-June to mid-July fell about 13%, but soybean bids and wheat bids for a new crop were both up. I think they were both up in the range of about 7 to 8%. So it was kind of a mixed bag, and I think that's exactly the way farmers looked at it, right? So on, on one hand, you know, from a corn revenue standpoint, things looked weaker than they did in mid-June, but that was at least partially counterbalanced by what was going on with some of the other commodities. And I think that's probably why we wound up with an index that was uh, pretty close to what it was the, a month earlier. Um, as you and I know, commodity prices are not the only thing that drive the index, but uh, certainly in the summertime. They're certainly important, yeah. They're important, when, particularly when you see big swings. And so ordinarily a 13% drop in, in corn value would suggest some weakness in the barometer. But I really think it was counterbalanced by what was going on with soybeans and wheat uh, and, and other commodities as well. If you look at the index of current conditions and future expectations, I think the current condition index was the driver of that small increase that we saw in the barometer. It was up five points compared to last month. It also leaves that index, I think, 11% higher than it was in July of 22. The future expectation index was up just one point, so almost no change at all. Uh, but that index is, I think, 24% higher than it was a year ago. So, um, you know, if you look at a, at a chart of those two, they're, the, they're basically sitting on top of one another, right? So that future expectation index is 124. The concurrent condition index is uh, 121. They're really just laying right on top of each other. So... I, it's kind of unusual that we see that take place, right? Normally we have people a little more optimistic about the future or a little more optimistic about the current situation. They're both a, feeling about the same on both, right? 
Yeah, but if you look at the futures, I mean, going back to the futures prices again, you look at corn in particular, it's it's relatively flat. I mean, there's not a huge huge change in from corn prices this December uh, compared to the December 24. Now, soybeans drop a little bit, uh, yeah, obviously, because we have a short shorter crop this year. Uh, but that, you know, given that the futures are relatively flat, uh, that helps explain this because we we've, we've had times before where next year looked a lot worse. Uh, from a price standpoint, or vice versa, uh, next year look better. And right now, we really don't have that situation. Yeah. yeah. So your interpretation is that when we see the current condition and future expectation indexes laying on top of one another, people are saying 2024 could look a lot like 2023 yes. from an income standpoint. Yes. Which is probably as good a forecast as we can come up with, given the volatility that exists. Right. The number of myriad factors influencing what could really happen over the next year and a half or so. Financial performance index was up one point. So again, almost no change. Uh, that reading is 87 versus 86 last month. A couple of months ago, back in May, that index was at 76. So things do look stronger there than they did back in May. Um, if you compare it to two years ago, uh, or compared to last year, it was one point lower than, than a year ago, and then 12 points below where it was two years ago. And that's no big surprise, given that what was going on in 2021. Um, were you surprised at this one? No, this one, this particular index tracks the index, the the economy barometer very closely, uh, as, as well as the the twelve month land value expectation. Those two questions seem to track uh, the ag barometer very closely. So it's interesting to look at some of the the sub questions, the questions that the uh, we use to derive the indices. And so this one is kind of interesting. Do you expect your farm's financial performance to be better than, worse than, or about the same as last year? And we saw a change, not so much between uh, July and June, but really maybe going back to May. Uh, there's been an improvement in the percentage of people who think that their farm's going to have better financial performance than last year. Uh, back in May, that was 14%. This month, it's 17%. Um, on the other side of that coin, only 30% say that financial performance is going to be worse this year than last year. Again, you go back to May, that was 38%. Uh, I think these numbers surprised both of us a little bit. Uh, maybe the percentage of people saying worse is the, probably the bigger surprise there, right? I would be a little more pessimistic than what, what this chart is suggesting, uh, you know, specifically saying that I think performance is going to be worse this year. But having said that, uh, there's a lot could happen. I mean, we don't know what the yields are going to be for individual farms, and, and that's going to impact the prices. And so uh, there, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things that could happen uh, to change this story. Yeah, and I, the other interesting thing about this, we don't usually talk about this much uh, either on the podcast or in the write-ups, but the percentage of people who expect their farms excuse me, financial performance to be better than or be about the same uh, as last year uh, is over 50 percent and has been for the last two months, right? 53 percent this month, 54 percent last month. Before that, back in May, when things were looking maybe a little more dismal for some folks, 48 percent. Um, that's been pretty consistent. That's kind of an interesting value as well, that over half the people expect things to be about the same, don't you think? Yeah, I think that means that they th expect things to stabilize here, uh, the income to be fairly stable here the next couple of years is what I'd interpret that. So another question we ask, uh, do you think that a year from now, so looking ahead, uh, a year from now, will your farm operation be better off financially, worse off, or about the same as now? And very small changes this month versus last month but kind of interesting to look at the change, I guess, over time. And so 
there was a, a one-point um, increase in the farmers who expect farm financial conditions to improve in July. It went to 21% versus 20. Uh, one-point decline in the percentage of farmers expecting conditions to worsen, so 31% expect it to worsen versus 32 last month. But the bigger story there to me is the fact that if you look at those numbers going back to this time last year, the percentage expecting a decline was in the ballpark of about 50%, and we're now we're down to 31%. Uh, a year ago, the percentage expecting an improvement um, was in the low teens, and now we're up around 21%. I think that trend over time is kind of interesting, don't you? Yeah, but if you look at the years that you're talking about here, uh, you know, 22 was a very good income year, and you could tell about this time last year that it was it was it was setting itself up uh, to be a really good income year. Whereas 23 wasn't did not look uh, quite as good, and, and you 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 speed ahead to this year, and 23 and 24 to me look like they're going to be similar. And in fact, uh, in fact, about 50 percent of the people think that their financial performance is going to be about the same. Yeah. So this is a different question, but it kind of points to that same idea that people are expecting 2024 to be pretty similar from an income standpoint um, and the impact financially on their farms as 2023, okay? Um, then we ask a question about U.S. agriculture, and again, this is one we tend not to focus on very often, but it's one that we do ask consistently. Uh, do you think it is more likely that U.S. agriculture during the next five years will have widespread good times or widespread bad times? And this index or these this responses to this question tend not to be very variable. There's not a lot of movement from one month to the uh, to the next. But it was kind of interesting that uh, the percentage expecting bad times actually declined. And if you compare that percentage over time, uh, it, it was down to 39 percent uh, this month versus 41 percent last month. You know, over time, that's been as high as uh, it's actually been above 50 percent a few times, but not very often. But um, that. That improvement is kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. And yet, like you said, the fact that these have been very flat, really, for the last two years, uh, it's kind of it's kind of interesting in itself. But because before that, you know, before COVID hit, we had more variability uh, in, in these two indices. Yeah. So maybe that's just picking up some uncertainty. You think, in, in the context of people not being certain about what's going to happen, there tends to be no change from one month to the next. Is that? Perhaps. So the Farm Capital Investment Index improved this month. It came in at 45 versus 42 for an index value. Uh, you compare that to a year ago, that index was at 36, and then you go back two years ago, it was at 50. And again, um, the improvement this month is interesting, and it's consistent, I guess, with the, the modest improvement that we saw in the barometer, although maybe in some respects exceeds the improvement that we saw in the barometer. But the interesting thing to me at, of this one is, if you go back to the low point in 2022, that index got down to as low as 31. So it's climbed 14 points since, I think, the fall of, of 2022. That's a big move for this index. That's a, that's a much more positive value than what we were seeing uh, as recently as last fall. Um, this one is really interesting because, as we're going to talk about next, uh, interest rates are, are expected to continue to climb, which would work against this index. They would tend to try to move the index down a little bit. However, as we were talking before this podcast, liquidity is still really strong, so that's positive in terms of this index, but also pent-up demand. There was quite a few people, as we know, uh, you know, during the COVID, uh, long COVID period, really had difficult finding machinery, and it was expensive, uh, and all of that. 
that. And so, and so there's some pent-up demand there uh, to buy some machinery. And so I think, I think that liquidity and pent-up demand is really helping uh, improve this index. Yeah, I, I just think it's really interesting that it's improved as much as it has since last fall. Um, because it doesn't seem to me that the conditions have changed that much with respect to availability, but but I, clearly that's I think one of the factors driving this, and I think you're right about the pent up demand. And the other thing is, um, even though interest rates are going up, I think people are maybe still not real concerned about that. Although we'll, we've got some contrary evidence here in a second, but a lot of folks looking at making purchases out of working capital, right? Yeah, liquidity is still really strong. So we do ask and have been asking now, I think, going back to February, what do you expect the U.S. prime interest rate to be one year from now? And we picked up a bit of a change this month. There were more people expecting an increase in interest rates over the course of the next year. In fact, uh, the two buckets we give people are 0 to 1% higher and 1 to 2% higher if, if they're going to choose a higher rate. And you combine those two, 65% said that they expect to see rates go higher over the next uh, 12 months. So roughly two-thirds of the people in the survey. Um, that's up from about, I think, 57% that felt that way last month. So normally, if you expect interest rates to go up, you would think that would create a somewhat unfavorable environment for investment. But our survey isn't supporting that, at least so far. Uh, that was that was interesting to me. Definitely very interesting. And the fact that a third of the people expect int interest rates to increase 1% to 2%, that's on top of the 4% we've already seen uh, in the last 18 months. Uh, that was a real kind of a surprising result. And that's a higher percentage increase than a lot of the in industry analysts have been talking about. They've been talking about maybe the Fed uh, will have some increases here, but it would be below 1%. Yeah. And... Uh, as you and I were discussing again before the podcast, maybe that's more consistent with what's going on in the economy because despite the increases in interest rates so far, the U.S. economy still seems to be somewhat surprisingly resilient. And inflation has come down, but it, it's still pretty high. Uh, it's still quite a bit higher than that 2% target. Yeah, so if the Fed really is serious about bringing down inflation, that 1% to 2% category might be... Uh, it could be more reasonable. If, if, if you and I were responding to the survey, that might be the category we would have chosen, huh? I think that's what we're kind of revealing here. So then uh, we've been asking this question going back to last summer. Uh, what is, if, if you think now is a bad time to make large investments in your farm operation, what's the primary reason for, doing, for feeling that way? And if you look at the chart, and I want to remind our listeners, if you're interested, you can download these charts that Michael and I are reviewing. The chart shows a clear change in the pattern. Uh, the first time we asked this question, only 14% of the people in the survey chose rising interest rates as a, as a problem. These last three months, for example, that's gone from 32% choosing rising interest rates in May to 35% choosing it in June, and now in July, 39% choosing it. And on the other side of the coin, uh, what had been the number one factor for influencing people to say it's a bad time to make large investments, which was the increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction, has been falling. You know, when we first asked this question in July of 22, I think that was chosen by 44% of the people in survey. In August of 22, it was chosen by 49%. That was the high uh, in terms of picking that particular source of consternation. On the current survey, down to 29%. Uh, so significantly, I'd say, below the percentage choosing uh, rising interest rates. So 
even though the farm capital investment index was up, it's clear that people are starting to think about interest rates, and at least some folks are saying that's an impediment to making large investments. Another interesting aspect about this result is in 22, we know that there's some rather large increases in both farm machinery and new construction throughout the economy. This is not just farm machinery and new construction, throughout the, throughout the U.S. economy and the world economy for that matter. The fact that 29% still say that increase in prices for farm machinery and new construction tells me that Prices are still relatively high. They really haven't come down. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, we don't have data on retail transactions for farm equipment, but I, I noticed this week in the Wall Street Journal that when GM reported their results, they reported their average transaction price over the last 12 months. As supplies had increased, had actually gone up by, I think, $2,000 uh, with their average transaction price, I think, now at $52,000. So we suspect that same thing, that same phenomenon is going on in farm machinery with respect to pricing, right? That they haven't really been, there hasn't been enough of an increase in supplies to see those prices back off, and that's still showing up among people. Always a lot of interest in what farmers think about farmland values. This month, not much change. Uh, the short-term index, which asks people to look ahead 12 months with respect to farmland values came in at 125. That's down one point compared to the month earlier, so essentially no change. Compared to a year ago, that index was at 127, so very little change compared to last year. You go back two years, the index was higher then. It was at 142. So again, if you look at the chart, there was kind of a significant downtrend with respect to people being optimistic about short-term values, but it never got negative. So just for make sure our listeners understand the index. As long as the index value is above 100, that means more people in the survey think farmland values are going up than think that it's going down. Um, but it's been kind of a rebound here these last two months, right? Yeah, and then there's still so, quite a few factors that are positive uh, for farmland values. Net returns are, are, are not supposed to be too bad uh, here in, in 23. You also have inflation, uh, lands and inflation hedge. Uh, there's still a lot of interest from, from outside investors or institutional, institutional investors in the farmland market. So there's several positive factors out there. Uh, the obvious negative, of course, we've already talked about is the increasing interest rates. Increasing interest rates, and actually maybe from looking ahead. Net returns in 23 are not as good as what they were in 21 and 22, and so you do have some softening in net returns. Yeah, and looking at the 24 as well. So the long-term index didn't change at all. It was at 151 last month. It's at 151 this month. You go back a year, it was at 150, so one point higher than that. You go back two years, it was 151. And a little bit like the short-term index, there was a bit of a downtrend in with respect to the, the long-term index. But these last roughly, I think, five months now, we've seen kind of a reversal of that trend. So that index at one point got down uh, in the 130s, I think in the mid-130s. And so we're up about not quite maybe uh, almost 15 points over the last few months. Yeah, and, and this index is created by looking at people that expect land values to increase, uh, people that expect land values to decrease. I want to talk a little bit about the decrease. Less than 10 percent of the people that think, look, think these long-term farmland uh, values are going to decrease in the next five years. They're, that's a pretty pessimistic group. Yeah, <laughs> that's true, because if you think about the long-term history 
of farmland values. I think you've looked at this more recently yeah. than I have. How many five-year periods have there been when farmland values actually Since 1960, there's only been a, a short period of time in the, in the mid-'80s, and then a, a recent period, 2019, it was slightly negative. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty rare. After World War II, right? Yes, I go to 1960 because that's readily available data, but you could extend this back to World War II. Um, so the follow-up question that we started asking last month, and we'll probably continue to ask this at least in a couple more times, is about cash rental rates here for corn and soybean producers. So compared to this year, what are your expectations for cash rents in your area in 2024? And the majority of people, uh, actually over two-thirds this month, it was 71 percent, say that they expect no change in cash rental rates. But there's about one out of four respondents, both this month and last month, who expect cash rental rates in 2024 to be higher than they are in 2023. This month was chosen by 24% of the people in the survey, 24% of the corn and soybean producers, and uh, last month it was 25%. So um, that's interesting, right? Uh, you, you made a point, again, before the podcast, we were talking about this a little bit, and you made a point about inflation having an impact here, right? Definitely. I mean, inflation for next year, let's peg that at 3-4%. Well, if, just keeping up with inflation, we'd have a small increase uh, in cash rent. And so uh, and, and, and so, I, I would not be surprised if we don't see a slightly higher cash rents in 24 compared to 23. Yeah. So, and again, you were, we were talking about this earlier. Uh, you have a model that you use to try and forecast cash rents, and you just actually updated that model this week, and we're looking at that. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, anything between zero and 5% uh, increase in cash rents in 24 would be would certainly be uh, within the realm of possibility given the model. I think one of the things to think about relative to maybe your model and, and what we're doing on the question, people, when they respond to this question, are almost invariably responding to nominal rates, meaning not inflation-adjusted. And I think your point was, if you see a, a roughly a four to five percent increase in nominal rates, that's essentially zero increase yeah. in real. Yeah, or zero, in yeah, zero percent in real, but it's still given given inflation, a small increase, a small increase in cash rent. And if you look over a longer period of time, I mean, again, this is Indiana going back to 1960. The average increase is about a percentage higher than inflation. Okay. I don't know if that's interesting, but that's uh, it, it. So it does follow. It you know a lot of times in the long term, it does follow inflation, but slightly higher increase in inflation. Yeah. So that'd be interesting to see how this shakes out. Of course, we'll be talking. Um, here in the near future to Todd Keithy about the results from the Purdue Farmland Value Survey, and of course that includes some cash runner rate information. So we'll be talking to Todd about that here in the next uh, next couple of weeks, I think. So um, then we always try and squeeze in some some new questions to see what people are thinking about. And this was a time of year when people are starting to think about whether or not they're going to plant a cover crop this fall. So we thought it'd be a timely to ask people about cover crops on their farm operation. So we included a few questions on that topic. And the first one was, have you ever planted a cover crop on your operation? And the part of that that we like to kind of focus on is the group that says, yes, and I currently plant cover crops. This month, that was 45% of the crop operators in the survey. So for clarification, this question went to people who uh, grow corn, soybeans, wheat, or cotton. Uh, if they don't grow one of those crops, we didn't. You know, they didn't get this question. 45% said yes currently. The last time we asked this question, which was back in September of last year, 57%. Um, we asked it in September of 21. It was 52%, and we asked it in August of 21. It was 41%. 
And I actually think what we've got going on there, Michael, is probably some sampling variability, don't you? Yeah, I, uh, if you look at the yes currently and you average out, uh, average us out over the last two years, it's about 50% have planted a cover crop. But it's very important to point out uh, to those listening uh, today that that doesn't mean that 50% of, uh, you know, that 50% that of all, you know, 50%, for those 50%, all of their acres were in cover crop. But a lot of these people have done, this is based on, on some previous surveys we've done uh, in, with, with the Ag Economy Barometer surveys. It's a fraction of their acres, and so a portion of their acres are in cover. Yeah, and that's also consistent with what we've observed on some of the farms, not all the farms, but some of the farms on the farm management tour. Um, not unusual for people to target specific aspects of the farm operation for cover crops. Some cases it's experimental, right, trying to learn about it a little bit. In some cases they literally have some farms that they think belong in cover crops, and, and so they target that way. So good, good point there. Um, we also followed up then and asked those folks uh, that said they plant cover crops, what are your motivations for planting cover crops? And they have, a, I think we had six buckets or no, maybe five buckets that they could choose from. The buckets were improved soil health, improve erosion control, improved water quality, carbon sequestration, and then the other category. So that could be almost anything. But, you know, no big surprise. Uh, 35% said soil health was their number one reason or one of their top reasons. Uh, improve erosion control was also chosen by, I think, 30%. So those two are the top two. Uh, improve water quality, uh, again, we've asked this question now four times, very consistent, right around 20%. This month it was 19%, so it was about water quality. Um, probably the most interesting thing on this response uh, category is the percentage that shows carbon sequestration. This month, 10% of the people who said they plant cover crops said that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons is carbon sequestration. That struck both of us as surprisingly high. Although it's consistent, we've got, uh, of the four times we've asked this question, three times it's been at 10 or 11%. One time it was at 5%. And the, and the reason for that is that's higher than the percentage of people that, that have uh, engaged in, in carbon contracts. That's why we're thinking that. And uh, Because usually if you're engaged in carbon uh, contracts, uh, you're going to sign a carbon contract, carbon sequestration is a big issue. But if you're not, it's usually not as big an issue. Yeah, and uh, let me elaborate on that. The way most of the carbon contracts work is if you've already been using carbon, uh, cover crops, you have trouble uh, latching onto a new contract. And so um, this, the responses to this question sort of imply that there's a little bit more going on with respect to signing carbon contracts than maybe we're picking up in some of our other survey questions. So, um, but I think it's, it's interesting. I, three out of four times we've got a response in that 10 to 11 percent category. It's, it's, and I guess the other thing, Michael, it's, there's always a little bit of ambiguity in terms of how people interpret the question. Uh, some of these folks might be thinking about signing a carbon contract and as a and a possible motivation for planting cover crops. Maybe they haven't actually done it. Oh, that, that's probably the case. That's our guess, right? So. <laughs> Um, then we, I think the last question we asked this month was, which statement best describes your experience with cover crops? And again, they had five different buckets to choose from. The first bucket was improved soil health and crop yields. That was chosen by 80% of the people who said they plant cover crops. Uh, the second bucket was improved soil health, but not crop yields. That was chosen by 15%. And again, we've asked these questions four times now. The responses on that have been pretty consistent. Uh, it's 15% this month, 
Uh, last September was 18% said that, 14% said that in um, September 21, and 9% said it in August of 21. So there's a, a minority, but it's a kind of a, a moderately stable minority of about 15 to not quite 20% uh, are telling us that they feel like it does have a positive impact on soil health, but they don't feel like they're showing any, any improvement in crop yields because of it. And then the other categories, which was does not improve soil health but improves crop yields, does not improve soil health but hurts crop yields, and then we give a, an additional bucket, say I'm not currently planting cover crops. Those are all really small. I mean, the very few people are choosing those. So the two buckets that are really uh, showing up uh, are those first two. And maybe the one that's most interesting is the folks that say, they are, yeah, we, th we think we're seeing some improvement in soil health, but we're not seeing any positive impact on crop yields. That's, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I, in, in, in some ways I thought that bucket might be a little bigger, but, but it's very crop specific. Uh, you know, sometimes when you talk to corn producers, for example, uh, they'll, they'll say that it, it doesn't improve crop yields, or maybe another crop it does. And so this is not a crop specific question. Again, it went to corn, soybean, wheat, and cotton producers. And so uh, we, don't, we don't break that down by crop. Yeah, the other thing that uh, you and I have been talking about is the fact that this is a national survey, um, and I think it's important to remember that. And as you think about how applicable cover crops might be, that's going to, you're going to see some variability. So, for example, if uh, one of the examples we were discussing recently was, you know, western Kansas, western uh, Nebraska, even, maybe even central Nebraska, uh, some areas where moisture tends to be a real concern and you don't want to do anything that would soak up additional moisture, in that context, cover crops might not be very applicable. And that's a much different situation than what we see here in Indiana parts of major, maybe all of Illinois, um, Ohio, Kentucky, et cetera, right? So it, it, this is a question where your response to that question is probably going to vary depending on the geography. No, that's an excellent point. And we, we didn't point out, but about a third of the people in the survey have never used cover crops. And it's very important when you're interpreting that particular question, third have never used cover crops. You got to remember there's quite a few people uh, in, the, in the Western Corn Belt and the Great Plains in this survey. And, and they're, they're looking at, at, at pres preserving moisture and cover crops works against preserving moisture. I feel compelled to point out this question only went to people that plant cover crops. Yes, you are right. <laughs> but I, I was talking about the, 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 the more general question that said, oh. did you ever plant a cover crop? Yeah, okay. I want to be specific there. I, a third of the people have never planted a cover crop. Sometimes I have to remind my co-author here. So anyway. <laughs> 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 All right. So on that jovial note, we'll kind of wrap up today's podcast. So just a reminder, you can get the full report on the Ag Barometer at purdue.edu slash Ag Barometer. Um, we always do the podcast every month, so if you're not currently subscribing and just happen to latch onto this, uh, you can subscribe to it. We do release this every month with uh, the release of the Ag Barometer, uh, and of course that's available on, on any of the major podcast providers. And you can also listen to it on the web. You don't have to subscribe if you just want to listen on your web browser. Uh, it's available at purdue.edu slash commercial ag, which is the homepage for the Center for Commercial Agriculture. And so with that, on behalf of my colleague, Dr. Michael Langemeyer in the Center for Commercial Agriculture, thanks for listening. I'm James Mintert on behalf of the Center for Commercial Agriculture.